Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPM podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about their tales and stories that have inspired their chosen path. Today, it's my great pleasure to be talking with Shannon Kuniff, who's an amazing woman, ASBPA board member, also on the editorial board of Shore and Beach, talking with her about some of her journal articles and how she reached her position and her enthusiasm for the coast. But first, we'll take a pause for some information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Shannon, we met several years ago when you came onto the board of ASBPA, and you were clearly a a great dynamic force coming onto the organization. And I know we've been doing a lot of environmental concerns and issues, but it seemed like you were there with the uh, maybe sole driving purpose of greening ASBPA and bringing us into the the natural shoreline situation and greatly appreciate what you've done. But um, clearly you didn't just start at this the day you walked into ASBPA. You came in with a lot of history and, and background and great great knowledge of how these things work. So since some of our listeners don't know you as well as I do, could you give them a little bit of your background? Sure, Leslie, and thanks for inviting me onto Shorewards. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think I had a predestination to ASBPA because I started my career at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and um, I was aware of ASBPA at a very early age in my career, and a lot of the work that I did involved dredging projects and whatnot. So, uh there, there was that connection. Um, plus, I'd say Derek Brockbank helped, who had worked with me uh, on a, the with EDF, the Environmental Defense Fund. He was at an, uh, National Wildlife Federation, and we had a partnership with Audubon and others working on coastal Louisiana and its restoration. So when he moved over to ASBPA, I think he thought of me and knew the work that I was doing and thought it would be a good match. But as to my uh, my career path, I mean, I my very first work uh, scholastically was on a barrier beach and looking at the dune vegetation in Southern California, a habitat that's almost been completely lost uh, to uh, under under the foot of the public. <laughs> uh, but I ended up, I worked at the Corps of Engineers, as I mentioned, and then I moved on to Environmental Protection Agency at headquarters, and then moved over to the Bureau of Reclamation, and then eventually to the Department of Defense. And throughout all of those um, different positions, I mean, where I worked was at the intersection of water resources, environmental policy, and science policy. 
the common themes to all those jobs were water quantity, floodplain management, sustainability, and ecological and community resilience. Although my work at DOD was perhaps the furthest afield in that I was helping them uh, work on emerging contaminants and the issues that were posed um, for them. It's amazing how the coast brings so many different fields together and your your history and career has touched on many of those. And, and unfortunately, uh, as you mentioned in Southern California, we, we love our beaches, we love our dunes, maybe to the point of, of loving them too much and doing a little bit of damage to them, but recognize as well that they're an important resource and something that we need to be taking care of. I know you're riding through Shore and Beach, but I know you've done a lot before Shore and Beach and you're doing a lot now, but what what do you view as your main purpose in writing about environmental um, options for coastal protection or economics? Why do you think writing is a good vehicle for that? Well, you know, that's, that's a really fascinating question. I, I think you know, my writing has several different aspects. There was the more technical aspect uh, for journals and scientific publications that are peer-reviewed, of uh, which I've done beyond Shore and Beach. Uh, you know, we've recently published an article with two other co-authors on in the journal Sustainable and Resilient Infrastructure that was all on tracking investment in natural infrastructure. And then... Um, Obviously, I also put together reports and white papers uh, on different aspects of what I was doing. But, you know, oh, let me stop there. One, one more recent thing, I'm completely spacing it, and it's just so stupid, uh, is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers just came out with a publication called their uh, Nature and Nature-Based uh, uh, I can't, can't remember the F stands for, isn't that terrible? The NNBF um, guidelines. And I uh, helped write a chapter in that. Um, it was actually a, a, an, organ, a, an effort that the Corps put together with lots of international input from engineers, ecologists, um, economists, I mean, everybody. And I was involved in the chapter that was on systems thinking. So to get to sort of your, your question, my writing is about you know the technical aspects, so that depends the peer review. Um, it's about getting policy information out there in a and you know what policy information is relevant to scientists and and for scientists, and vice versa, and what science information is important to policy folks. Um, so it's always been about natural infrastructure in the last decade. It's often been about advocacy. So some of my writing has been blogs. When I worked at the Environmental Defense Fund, it was uh, through the Delta Dispatches blog and another blog that they had called Growing Returns, uh, where I would take up these issues. And then interestingly enough, you know, you start blogging and other people start talking to you. So I was picked up, um, obviously, some of the EDF blogs were picked up, but, you know, people would ask me to, to write for them. And other ones were like, like, one was called, I think, Mind in the Waters. I've already forgotten. And Bloomberg, I wrote for them twice. Um, Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Environment. So, you know, I think it's important to use the communication media in, in any way you can. Blogging, Twitter. I also have a pretty active Twitter account. or I think it was more active than it is now. But 
I have like 3,000 followers. Um, so the whole point is to try to get information and get natural infrastructure into the minds of folks so they think of it as one of the possible solutions or tactics that they can use in um, dealing with the growing flood threat that pretty much everybody in the United States is experiencing to one extent or another. Yeah, definitely. And, and in California, we're also facing the equal threat of erosion. And I think erosion is, is under underreported and underrelated. And when I talk about natural infrastructure, I actually talk about it in terms of erosion uh, protection or slowing erosion. It may not always stop it, but it can slow it. And as well as the flood risk reduction, because all of that adds up together to help reduce damages to property. And more and more we're realizing that, that critical infrastructure is, is being threatened as well. And so we've got you know, sort of many fronts upon which we're trying to do protection. I think it's great that you've carried this through from your your time with the Army Corps of Engineers, um, and you've seen them change their philosophy, maybe not change their philosophy, but, but become more strong in their philosophy of recognizing uh, nature-based solutions and engineering with nature as, as a real focus. Um, and perhaps you could take some credit for having moved that dial a little bit. Well, I might, I think it would be, it would be too much to say I took more than a scintilla of credit there. There are some major movers and shakers uh, uh, that are making such a huge difference um, in this area. But I think that it's, it's many voices talking about these issues from different perspectives and using the opportunities to, um, you know, promote the, the concept to figure, work with others to figure out, well, what are the sticking points that we need to clarify or figure out and do research on to address? Um, so it's, it's, but it is, it's very exciting to be, you know, part of, you know, a piece of an emerging concept and take it from something that was considered pretty out there in a wild, like, what is this town you're doing? To, oh yeah, natural infrastructure. We have to pay attention to uh, you know, increase uh, the size of our floodplains and protect wetlands and, and whatnot is, is almost, it's on the verge of becoming the, the common vernacular, that it's part of the tool, tool set. That's true, yeah. Um, I'm going to steal another quote from you that I really liked, that one of the things you enjoy in your work is getting people to partner with plants. I mean, I just, I, I love that idea. I can see people tripping along with their little kelp forests and things, swimming through them as partners together in, in shore protection and flood protection. But who are some of the people that you you look to to partner with? Who are the people you admire and want to um help promote their work as well. Like you say, it's a partnership. It's a community. Yeah, gosh, there are so many. Um, it's been really fun. Sometimes on Twitter, people will put out lists and ask other people to pile on, like, who are the movers and shakers? Or who should I talk to about this? And it's fun to participate in that and add, you know, see your name there and then go and add other people's names. So I would do a disservice because, you know, my mind goes blank at all the people that are so significant and that I would love to partner with. But I can think of a few people that I would say inspire me and that, you know, um, not only to do more and do better, but who are doing great work themselves. And like, I wish I could be as effective in them. Um, 
One is a mentor of mine, uh, Jerry, Dr. Jerry Galloway, who uh, is a geographer by training like myself, uh, a former Corps of Engineers person, although at a far higher level than I ever was at the Corps, he was a Brigadier General. And, you know, he closed out his um, formal career. He's now emeritus at the University of Maryland, but uh, still very active in the floodplain management field. He's a thought leader. And honestly, he's a truth teller and a very elegant one at that. And uh, so I find him inspiring. And, you know, sometimes I read some of his essays and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I meant all that. I didn't use those words, but gosh, I wish I'd said it that way. <laughs> yes. Oh, we need then, more people like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then another person is Dr. Michael Back at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, and he used to be associated with the Nature Conservancy. I think he still may be in some way, shape, or fashion. Uh, but he's been doing a heck of a lot of research on um, documenting the advantages of natural infrastructure and the the um, services they provide in particular in flood risk reduction. So he's looked at uh, coral reefs, they've looked at wetlands in New Jersey, and he was instrumental in uh, that kind of work. And I, you know, I'd love to work with him again. In a different vein, um, someone who I really enjoyed working with, and I would love to work with again in any kind of partnership would be Daniel Stander, who I first met because he was working with Risk Management Solutions, and which is a company that was doing cut or still is doing cutting edge uh, analysis, mostly for the private sector, but anybody can hire them in looking at storms and risk. Um, the insurance guys all hire them to figure, you know, figure out uh, what the you know the growing risks are. Um, particularly of coastal development. So he's now working, I think, as a, a special advisor to the UN Development Program and, and incorporating risk as part of sustainable development and looking at financial tools to help accelerate adoption of sustainable practices. So he's he's uh, just another a brilliant man. I, I, can't, I, I can't tell you how much I love to sit at a bar and just listen to him talk. <laughs> So my next question, and I'm tempted to ask you what would be what you'd be drinking at that bar, but I'm not going to go there. No, no, I'm sure it'd be. <laughs> depends on the day, Leslie. Depends on the day. And and it's I think it's great that you're mentioning the insurance industry because it seems like they're so much more on top of the, the climate risks and the concerns at the coast than the folks with whom they um, interact in the public. And it's it's sort of baffling that those there's that disconnection of their intense scrutiny of risk and our mm, not understanding not of getting it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I want to join you with, at that bar someday and talk with you and Daniel about how that how we work on that part of it. Yeah, he, he's he's fascinating. He's creative, uh, and he and he does a hell of a slideshow. Uh, and, and I think that you're pointing out a really interesting problem, which is, you know, how do we get the public to really understand their risks? I mean, these issues are not new issues. People have been suffering from flooding. And, you know, despite tremendous advances uh, brought about by FEMA, largely, um, 
we still have, uh, I think, something like 16 million people at risk of a 100-year flood, meaning they're in the 100-year flood plain in the United States. And FEMA expects that to go up to 40 to 45% by, by 20, uh, 2021. Sorry, 2100. <laughs> Sorry, now. not this year, 2100. <laughs> and um, I mean, those are some pretty scary statistics. And yet, you know, so many people don't even realize that they live in floodplains. They think, oh, it's a, it's a hundred year storm. There won't be another one in a hundred years. You know, I mean, the, the uh, or the insurance is too expensive. I, I it's not worth it to me. It, and yet their risk is higher than it would be if they, uh, you know, were to have a fire, but they have fire insurance. So there's definitely a gap there. Um, but I also think that with the insurance industry, one of the challenges is their models are all proprietary. They're hired by companies to look at risk. And those companies really don't want to spread that information out about what the risk is to them. And a lot of, of, you know, communities or, you know, counties that are, you know, coastal and suffering these risks, they want to make sure that they don't get a bad rap uh, such that it would affect their bond ratings or that would affect people and companies moving out of the area. And these are all things that, you know, can and probably will happen. Right. I mean, they're definitely real considerations. And there's also that other side of it of, do you want to be the mayor, the last mayor of a town before it has all its citizens leave? You don't. I mean, there's the book um, Rising Tides, I think it was, about New Orleans after 1933. Or even going back then, that when New Orleans was first settled as a community, the, the little settlement that became this wonderful, vibrant, amazing city um, flooded. And yet the person who was given that land to govern as the, the, the mayor or governor or whatever the, the French called it of that region didn't want to vacate his fiefdom. And so the engineers were actually saying, why don't we build over there where there's higher ground out of the flood area? You're saying, no, this is the land I have. This is where we're going to build. It's been endemic to the U.S., you know, sort of development and maybe worldwide development for so long that we um, we take a stand and we have a hard time giving up that area. Well, this whole notion of retreat is uh, is problematic because of that giving up sense. And yet, there are some pretty interesting ways uh, that can you can go about. Uh, gracefully, strategically retreating from certain high-risk, repetitive-risk areas. Um, and I, I remember after the 93 floods in the Midwest, Valmire, the town of Valmire, relocated. The entire town moved up off the banks of the river and up on a cliff. And a local farmer gave them the property. So some pretty amazing things are possible if you've got leadership. And they had a very thoughtful mayor who helped make it happen. I think the scale that we're looking at now makes those ideas very daunting. But I think that we there are ways to soften those messages. And I think some of what you're doing is that 
that softening in a way of saying, here are ways to pay for, here's ways to find community funding for and alliances to do a um, nature-based designing with nature, working with working with the forces that are there so that we're trying to align ourselves in our developments with what's already part of the playing field. Right. And I would add one additional point, which is, and these are ways to make your community better because of the co-benefits associated with natural infrastructure. Um, the um, Institute, International Institute for Sustainable Development just came out with this, a report um, in the last couple of weeks, I think it was. And they found that 28%, 28 added value from nature, natural infrastructure all associated with, you know, be over and above the flood protection benefits. Those were added value from increased, improved water quality, enhanced wildlife, recreation, tourism enhancement, job creation, and overall quality of life improvements, you know, some of which can be health related. So that's pretty exciting. I mean, if you can find a solution that is, it makes your community uh, safer and more attractive economically, socially, environmentally. Yeah. And one of the economists we work with a lot here in California has, has often reminded me that um, if we don't put values on things, I'm going, that beach is priceless. We could not possibly, I couldn't tell you how much I would pay to spend another day on that beach. Well, ultimately, you know, that is something you have to value. And if you don't put a value on something, then it has no value. And as we're talking about all the benefits we can get and co-benefits we can get from nature-based solutions, that's part of that same deal. We don't often talk about the recreational enhancements, what that means to somebody to be able to get out and have some fresh air and clean space. We might evaluate in terms of their health benefits. We might value it in terms of how much it would cost to do an equivalent water treatment plant but there are more and more of those intrinsic values we're, we're trying to recognize and, and pay attention to. And so I'm sure that this report you've mentioned actually talks about that some. And I'm glad it's, it's becoming part of the metrics we're using to appreciate the, the good and bad things we've been doing along the coast for a number of years and finding ways to do better as we go forward. Um, so... What books would you say were most influential for where you are today? And what are you reading right now, by the way? Well, okay, I'm reading a um, Naomi Noviak fantasy uh, <laughs> <laughs> about, it's a historical fiction with, uh, I guess, a, t a twist because there's dragons in the world and you have all of the different um from the Napoleonic Wars, basically, and, and slavery, dealing with the issues, what if there were dragons and they were used in different ways and they were intelligent. But you probably didn't really want to know about that. I did just read an article in Scientific American that the, this month's issue that came out uh, on atmospheric rivers, and it's right up you know, our alley here in terms of topics. But in terms of maybe books that have influenced you know, me and my choices. I got to say the very first book was probably Ed Ricketts Between Pacific Tides. Mm -hmm. 
as a Californian, you're probably familiar with it, but it was my Bible uh, in high school uh, in that I, you know, used it to identify creatures and learn about the coast. Uh, and then the other ones, I, more recently, I would say I really um, enjoyed uh, Jared Diamond's book, uh, Collapse. And the subtitle is How Society Chose, Chooses to Fail or Succeed. Such an uplifting title. <laughs> <laughs> well, he and he does end on a, you know, an up note. And I mean, the point is you can choose to do better and avoid problems. Uh, and it, it's a sobering book, um, especially when you sort of see what's happened since that book came out, because this book came out maybe 15 or more years ago. Uh, and then, uh, I do enjoy reading Jeff Goodell's books. I've read, uh, The Water Will Rise. Um, I've read a number of his articles, uh, in Rolling Stone. And I, I mean, I like his coverage. Um, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with, I, I think he's comfortable with the idea of geoengineering. Uh, I'm less certain about it. I mean, because I think that's a, an experiment at a global scale on top of, uh, in effect, an experiment on global scale that we've been doing for the last 150 years. But uh, I still find him uh, well-researched and very thoughtful and a good read besides. Yep, I agree. So several years ago, when I was first starting Shorewords, I encountered you at a conference and I was doing a, a poll of people's favorite books about the coast. And unfortunately I've lost the notebook that I put all of those in, but I remember your book. Oh, what did I say? Uh, Kate Chopin's Awakening. And I'd never thought of it as a coastal book. Well, I'd never read it, so I didn't know to think of it. It's actually a novella or a short, long story, I guess, but um, that early lure of the coast, that draw that people have to it, and the sort of the freedom it gave her, and then also the, you know, sort of the tragic ending for the story of those who haven't read it yet. I'm not ruining it too much, but I, I just, I, I appreciated that so much in, in that it, it sort of identified to me that you had a really strong literary perspective on, well, the coast at least, and... Um, I read it, so thank you for that. You you helped me expand my own knowledge about the coast and books. Um, and right now, I'm actually reading a book by Catherine Hayhoe called "Saving Us." It's a great book about sort of how you message with people with whom you don't always agree, and certainly an important thing for a lot of us to think about as as we start trying to talk about. Stuff that's uncomfortable. Managed retreat being one of them. Even the words are kind of our, our fighting words. We, we don't retreat, but, but the, the issues that we're dealing with have to be you know, sort of also dealt with on a, on a frank basis. You know, another um, uh, complex conversation about not related to natural infrastructure and equity is that some authors have put forward that, you know, putting natural infrastructure into communities 
leads to gentrification and therefore is a bad thing. And I feel that we really need to have some really good conversations about, well, putting in gray infrastructure would also improve a community. Uh, but, you know, what is it that the community wants? You know, and what is it that the community needs are really the questions, not, you know, does it lead to gentrification or not? I mean, I guess you want to know that it leads to gentrification, but you don't want to deny people that are living in these high hazard communities in some cases because of redlining and other policies. Um, so they started off with an inequity and now they, they have an inequity in terms of risk. Mm -hmm. And I feel like are, are some people saying they can't have solutions because that makes their community safer? That, that those are some tricky questions that we're going to need some help. Very sensitive, you know, leadership and conversations to figure out a path forward. Definitely. And, and it seems like the introduction, as you're saying, the introduction of gray infrastructure is often something that is a detriment to the community. Can be, can be. You can divide a community, separate it from its asset, the coast or the river, for example. Yeah. Or if you were talking about putting in a wastewater treatment plant or a power plant even, um, suddenly you're, you're introducing a lot of, of other, uh, other elements to that community that are often not very help, healthy and or um, uniting of people other than perhaps to stop the power plant or stop the coal train or stop whatever it is and that would unite them. Um, who would you want on that conversation in talking about equity of natural ba nature-based infrastructure? As individuals, I'm not sure. I'd have to really think about that hard. I think in a general sense, I think it has to be a community-based discussion. I think that we need to have social scientists as well as physical scientists and ecologists, uh, as well as, you know, urban planners and a whole slew of communications experts um, that can create a constructive and safe environment for sharing of feelings, of fears, of desires, and needs. It's a conversation. It's a conversation that needs to be held many, many places and needs to be started for sure. And needs to be done in ways that actually bring people to the table that may not have engaged in this kind of process before. Um, you know, the work that oh, I should never say something without knowing the, who, who the group is because it's, it's spacing my brain right now. But down in Louisiana with some of the rebuild um uh, by design money that came out of Superstorm Sandy. Uh, the, they did some really um, innovative work to uh, help people get to meetings, uh, you know, having it at multiple different times a day, providing transportation, providing childcare, providing food, things like that, to really ensure that voices were participating and heard. And that's hard and that's expensive. Uh, but, I mean, when we have serious problems, sometimes we need some serious effort. And doing it the same old way 
that we've gone about it in the last 50 years is not going to be the way to do it. I mean, that same old way seems to be a couple of agencies or corporations making a decision and just going ahead and putting something in. Then NEPA came in, CEQA for California. That was an overlay to it. And I think we're now seeing the, the next generation of how these projects are going to be discussed and framed out in a way that really does make them more community focused. And wouldn't it be nice if we were having conversations from the start that were about what do we want and need, uh, not based on, as you were just articulating, fighting something that's been proposed or even started. Are there things you wanted to talk about I haven't asked you about yet? <laughs> I'd love to talk about things I'm doing now because I'm doing some interesting stuff. Um, I mean, retirement is as busy as I've ever been, which I've heard other people say. I don't know how people do it and get bored. Um, I guess it's a personality thing. <laughs> but you mentioned like that I'm, I'm on the board for ASBPA, and I'm involved in three different efforts there, um, one of which is putting together uh, an issue for Shore and Beach as one of the uh, co-guest editors that's going to be focusing on social considerations and resilience planning. And so trying to pull out some of these questions of fairness and equity and what needs to be done, what research, what are the, you know, what are the questions, how do we go about it? So I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to put out a call for abstracts on that in about two weeks. Um, been supporting uh, a new program at ASBPA uh, called the Blue Flag Beaches Program, uh, which is geared towards uh, both environmentally the environmental acceptability of beaches, the cleanliness, uh, the care that goes into them, but also their, the ability to educate the public about the resources at the beaches. And then continuing uh, with the Best Restored Shores Awards, which are uh, one of the things that you mentioned at the very beginning of trying to bring ASBPA forward and I said the way I pitched it was in part were the American shore shore and beach <laughs> preservation uh, and you know we have beach awards but we don't have anything for mm -hmm. the shore and you know this natural infrastructure stuff or infrastructure stuff is really picking up and why don't we recognize and help promote good projects and what's been exciting about that is that we continue to evolve the award um, as the, the state of the art evolves. And so what we're really pressing for now is folks having three years of monitoring that's outcomes based, you know, not just did you put a wetland in, um, but are you getting the benefits and the results that you expected to get? And so I think that's that's really exciting because that's going to add to the body of knowledge so that more people understand how to do it, uh, what to expect out of it, how not to do certain things when they fail, for example, is, is also very valuable. Um, then I'm also involved um, with, I'm on a scientific advisory committee for the Stone Living Lab, which is a partnership between the University of uh, Massachusetts, Boston School for the Environment, the city of Boston, Boston Harbor now, and the National Parks of Boston, and funded by the James uh, M. and Catherine D. Stone Foundation. And I was asked to join them. They're looking at nature-based resilient solutions um, applicable to 
the greater Boston area. And it's just been so fascinating and fun working with the academics and guiding them not only on sort of the questions of, of, of science and practice, but the policy questions um, and how they can help better inform policy. And then finally, I'm still doing a little bit of consulting work with Environmental Defense Fund, uh, Texas A&M, and the Galveston Bay Foundation. We're looking at, we got a three-year uh, grant from the National Academy of Sciences, and we're looking at the intersection of flooding and the release of petrochemicals in Galveston Bay in the Gulf Coast writ large. So really asking the question is, how can nature-based solutions reduce the risks not only of flooding, but limit the risk of exposure to harmful chemicals? And, you know, and where can you put nature-based solutions? What might they do? And so there's, you know, because this issue of flooding, it's not just, you know, it's not just the flood and the water coming. It's what's carried in that water um, that can be uh, just as devastating, maybe even in the long term more devastating than the, the flood itself. So that's a really interesting pursuit. Yeah, definitely. I'm writing right now about tsunamis for various issues. And again, it's the water is devastating, but what it brings with it and what it leaves behind is, is the real, often the, the really hard part to address and deal with. But you haven't mentioned Ian McCarg. Oh, well, uh, that's partly because <laughs> I haven't done much with them in the last year or so. And I don't know if that's a COVID related thing since, you know, so much of the world went on a bit of a hiatus or a bit of a reset. Um, but I was working with the McCarg School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania, and um, they are looking at uh, from a design and urban design and architecture perspective uh, at, they don't really call it nature-based solutions, but designing with nature in mind. And so using uh, the natural services and looking at the landscape and figuring out well, you know, maybe it's not the best place to put a community if it's in this low-lying area. You know, that's sort of an obvious one. But they're, they've uh, it's really, really fun working with a bunch of designers and architects. Uh, they are, they're so creative. They're so interesting. The, some of the most stimulating conversations I've ever had has been with this group of people. And by the way, they also do the fanciest PowerPoint presentations I've ever seen. Oh, I'm sure they would. I mean, in terms of color and style, they're just a joy to sit through. (laughs) And here I thought all the most fascinating conversations you ever had would would be with ASBPA folks. But (laughs) (laughs) Well, those are pretty good, too. Okay, good, 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 good. With your Blue Flag Beaches connection, this may be a final question you don't want to answer, but what's your favorite beach? (laughs) You know, I do live uh, very close to Lake Champlain. So I got to tell you, there are some lovely beaches that I did not know about until I moved to Lake Champlain area. And, uh, but, so in thinking about a purely coastal beach, I still have to say it's the, the beaches in East Hampton and Amagansett. I used to go out there in the 60s before it was super discovered when it was still sort of an artist colony and, of course, a few very wealthy people 
Now it's very different. But oh my gosh, those dunes and that white, white sand, um, just spectacular. And I'm sure there's about 10 I could list for California, but maybe the one I went to and did my master's thesis is probably nearest and dearest to my heart. It's not a public beach though, because it's on the Pacific, well, what was the Pacific Missile Test Center and is now the Joint Base, uh, I don't know what it's called, Joint Base Ventura, Wainimi, something like that. There are some great beaches and we all recognize how wonderful they are and want to find ways to keep them and keep their functionality. And um, thank you for all the work you're doing to help people appreciate many of the values um, that our beaches and shorelines do offer, riverine shorelines as well as coastal shorelines. And um, thank you for being on Shorewards today. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Shannon. Thank you for all the work you're doing, because, you know, beyond beyond Shorewards, but including Shorewards, um, I think it's great to have these outlets and reach more people. Hats off to you guys. Thank you. And for the folks who've been listening to this, thank you so much for, for giving us some of your time today to listen to Shorewords. I hope that it's giving you some inspiration, a little bit of education, and encourage you to look differently at your favorite beaches and shorelines. Till next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. Goodbye.